This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. The COVID-19 pandemic drove home an important lesson that the smallest organisms can be the deadliest. Not only are they highly fatal, they are also incredibly adept at evading the antibiotics and antimicrobials that we have in our, if I dare say, relatively pitiful arsenal of drugs in conjunction with World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, which runs from the 18th to the 24th of November. I'm joined by Professor Stephen Baker, a molecular microbiologist and the Director of Research at the Department of Medicine in University of Cambridge, to um, hopefully share his research on antimicrobial resistance. How can we counter it? How can we change the course of this global health threat? Thank you so much for joining me, Professor. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you much for uh, inviting me. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today. You are a molecular microbiologist by training. Um, Maybe you could just share what exactly um, does a molecular microbiologist do? Why the interest in microbes, actually? Yeah, so scientists love jargon. So let me break that down for you. So um, micro, micro, small biologists. So we study small things. So study microbes. Uh, In my case, I study bacteria. And molecular means we study it at a molecular level. So not only do we grow microorganisms in the lab, but we also pull them apart at a molecular level and look at their genetics, look at their DNA and understand how they work. So that's kind of what I do. That's kind of what I do on a daily basis. So we we take microorganisms and we really pull them apart to try and understand how they behave. All right. And why the interest in this? Yeah, um, I think that I've, I've always been kind of slightly fascinated in slightly grim things. I think that probably as a child, I don't think I ever really got over the fascination with studying things that were a bit kind of disgusting. Um, so I think I developed more of a kind of microbiology interest as I got older. Uh, I didn't study it at the university, interestingly. I studied um, a different branch of biology and I got into studying microorganisms a bit later date um, when I got into uh, interest about how they worked through studying their genetics. So it was really kind of the molecular route, the, the gene aspect that got me into microbiology. But I've always been slightly fascinated with things that are a bit disgusting. <laughs> disgusting, but um, they are... Um, I, 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 should I use the word admirable in a way um, that we should yeah. not should not take them for granted and underestimate um, the role that they play in um, sort of surviving throughout humanity's um, you know lifetimes, right? Wow, you you what a fantastic point to make. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how they they work. I mean, as a kind of biologist that studies them, there's a huge amount of admiration for how adaptable they are. Um, not just in the, you know, as we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about antibiotics, but not just in the recent kind of history with antibiotics, but throughout evolution of where they've come from and where they are today and their ability to, to interact with a whole host of different species and environments. You know, there's, there's bacteria in every hostile environment uh, in, in the world, uh, and they've learned to adapt and survive there for a, for, a, for a lot longer than human beings will. And if we are going to find life within our solar system, 
in the next whatever hundred years than it's likely to be bacterial form probably. So yeah, they are amazing organisms to study and, and you can watch their kind of real-time evolution in the laboratory. So as a, if you're a bit of a geek, then they're kind of really interesting thing to kind of work on because you can really get to grips and, and look at their kind of elegance of how they behave in certain environments. And so, you know, the problem statement today is that antimicrobial resistance is a public health problem. Um, how do you explain this to people who basically don't work in the lab with you? How do you emphasize the severity of this as a public health threat to all of us? Well, I think, first of all, there's a bit of a kind of misunderstanding generically about what it means. Um, and I think that's that is the key message. So, so I'll, I'll describe a little bit about what it means um, and then and then how we, you know, we, we kind of understand the severity of the, the problem that we face. So since the kind of discovery of the first um, chemicals that kill microorganisms uh, in the 1940s, then we've gone through a period of then understanding that we can then treat bacterial infections by these chemicals that we give, and they're called antibiotics, anti-life antibiotics. And antimicrobial is the same thing. It kills a microbe, but they're things that we manufacture. So antibiotics are generally natural. Um, so we've gone through a real kind of golden period, if you like, of understanding how we can kill microorganisms that infect us with these chemicals. Um, but as you alluded to in your earlier comments, they're very, very adaptable um, and they can evolve very, very quickly. Um, so as we invent or discover, if you like, uh, new anti antibiotics or antimicrobials, uh, the bacteria learn to become resistant to them very, very quickly. And there's different ways they can do that. Um, they become desensitized to them. They can have changes in their genetics, uh, whereby they have little mutations which make them behave in a different way to the drug or they can gain extra bits of genetic material that contains a gene which allows them then to deactivate that drug in a certain way. Now, a really true but a kind of amazing statistic is there's not been a single antibiotic that's been uh, released onto the kind of general, for general circulation that resistance hasn't been described within three years of the drug being released. So this is how quick it happens. And then as we take these drugs, um, we, we generate these kind of problems that maybe the organisms in us um, are already resistant and therefore we select for them because they survive the treatment or they may acquire resistance while they're in us. Um, and that then becomes a major problem because then we can then go on and pass those things on to others. So, and what we've done is create a bit of an arms race. So every time we get resistance to a new antibiotic, uh, we've we've gone out and discovered or released a new antibiotic to compensate for that. Uh, and it's really then come to the end of the line, really, fairly grimly, whereby we've really kind of run out of runway for the development of new antibiotics. So we've probably really got to the point where we're at the end of all our antibiotics that we've used over the last, whatever, 80 years. And now we're to the point where drug-resistant organisms that are resistant to a whole kind of cornucopia of different antibiotics are circulating in our communities, in our hospitals. And then when we or somebody we know gets infected with one of those, then there are very limited treatment options, meaning they have to be treated with very expensive uh, and potentially not very effective antibiotics because that's all we've got left. Or they're simply infected with organisms that are untreatable with any antibiotic we have. And that means we have to wait and see whether that person naturally recovers 
um, or whether they succumb to the infection because there is nothing we can do to intervene with them. So, and how bad is it? I mean, it is that serious. I think that probably it is slightly underestimated and it's something that we kind of see a little bit tangentially like climate change that we don't really think about it, even though it is impacting us indirectly. I think that if you were to ask people that you knew have had relatives, there would be, you would know people that have been in hospital that have succumbed to infection in the last few years. And probably a number of those will have been infected with certain organisms that would have been very, very difficult to treat and therefore they would have died from it. So this is a problem that's getting bigger and bigger. We have kind of slightly ignored it and got a bit blasé about it. And now we really are at kind of the tipping point with need, the need to come up with new solutions with how we tackle it. What kinds of infections are we talking about from the perspective of a lay person? Uh, we're not talking yeah. about exotic diseases. These are probably respiratory, gastrointestinal bugs that are common. Yeah. So there, Yes, exactly. So these would be things that we may naturally pick up. Um, a respiratory tract infection, so an, an infection in our lung or, or, or uh, that could then become more serious and require antibiotics to treat it that we may not be able to treat. Um, my particular focus is on enteric bacteria. So these are enteric means in the gut. So these are organisms that live in a gastrointestinal tract. So a lot of us may have had serious gastrointestinal infections or children in developing countries get serious gastrointestinal infections, which sometimes necessitate um, antibiotics and, and they are resistant Urinary tract infections, which are a major problem, particularly in the elderly. Um, so getting a bladder infection and then not being able to recover from a bladder infection, having persistent problems. But just to kind of highlight the, 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 the kind of broader issue that we use antibiotics for lots of other things, too. So if you go into hospital uh, for a surgery or a woman giving birth and has a cesarean section, they will be given antibiotics uh, to prevent post-operative uh, infections. Uh, so that also becomes a problem whereby if we're then infected with resistant organisms, if you get a post-operative infection after minor surgery um, or a, a C-section, then suddenly we have the, the case where we have lots of post-operative infections from normal routine surgery that are also untreatable. So the problem is really kind of escalating in lots of different ways. And uh, just something else to kind of emphasise the burden of the problem. How many deaths a year are currently caused by antimicrobial resistance? And I, I, again, something to for people to relate to, how might this compare to deaths due to um, cancer or, you know, other diseases? Yeah. So it's really difficult to quantify. Um, so how we calculate that is very difficult because of the way records um, are collected. Um but there are estimates to suggest that it's been increasing uh, really dramatically over the last 10 years. Um, and it's still not up there with the likes of um, cancers. But there's been mathematical extrapolations of this. So these are calculations that people do, given the current trajectories about where we predict things are going to end up. And there's a very famous report that was commissioned by the British government a few years ago called the O'Neill Report, that predicted by 2050 um, that it would be the number one killer worldwide would be resistant organisms um, and probably responsible for about 10 times the number of deaths that cancer are. So at the moment, yeah, they're increasing and probably increasing annually, but probably not as big a deal as cancer at the moment. But the prediction is if you continue on that trajectory, that it will be the number one killer by 2050. All right, let's go for a quick break. And when we come back, we could 
potentially be discussing how can we change the course of this um, huge public health threat. I'm speaking to Professor Stephen Baker, Director of Research at the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge about antimicrobial resistance. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Joining me via Zoom today, all the way from the UK, Professor Stephen Baker, Director of Research at the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge. He's also a molecular microbiologist, sharing um, his thoughts on antimicrobial resistance in conjunction with World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, which runs from 18 to 24th of November. Um, you know, I have to confess, I think, over at our station, we're perhaps a little guilty of only covering this topic um, during this time of the year when um, you know it's observed. Um, but I also find that we are asking the same questions over and over again of our experts, um, whether they are microbiologists or infectious disease physicians um, grappling with this problem. Um, I guess one thing that I want to ask you, Professor, is um, what have we been doing wrong Um, that has led us to where we are? Is it in the use um, of antimicrobials? Um, Yeah, perhaps you can share. Wow. What have we been doing wrong? I mean, everything. Um, I mean, we've basically conducted the biggest global microbiology experiment imaginable in the last 80 years. Um, And if we were to start again from penicillin in the 1940s, um, hindsight's a great thing, but I think we'd behave very differently. Um, so, so once we got kind of used to having having access to antibiotics, the way they've been used, regulated, or, or not regulated often, has been a problem. So, actually, I don't know how it is in Malaysia, um, but certainly, you know, I, I spent a lot of time living in, in in other parts of Southeast Asia, and you can buy them over the counter in, in, in pharmacy shops. Um, so access to them becomes very easy. They're very cheap. Um, they're often given for the wrong things. Um, they're supplemented to animal feed. They're sprayed on vegetables. Um, they're they're given uh, without any real thought of the diagnosis. Um, they're given in conjunction with lots of other things, and they may interact with one another. We don't cycle them properly, meaning that we just use them ad hoc, and we don't have, you know, fixed antimicrobial kind of um, uh, cycles for using them at different times to prevent these things. So, kind of, we've kind of done everything wrong uh, by just conducting this kind of free-for-all experiment to get us to the point we're in. Um, in fact, there's, yeah, what have we done right? I mean, apart from having a golden period of, of creating them in the 1950s and 1960s. We haven't really done a lot right. Most of what we've done has been wrong, I think. Yeah, you've described a lot of practices that take place here in Malaysia as well. And um, it's one thing to say that this is happening perhaps at the clinical community setting, you know, whether it's doctors or pharmacists, uh, just sort of dispensing them, people demanding for them, um, uh, people in agriculture using them. But, you know, also there's the policy perspective, right? And um, if I could quote, I think you had strong words recently for your um, Secretary of uh, State for Health, who, who, who now has a different portfolio, but she suggested that pharmacists be allowed to prescribe antibiotics without a doctor's diagnosis. And this is not just practices taking place here and there. This is a sweeping policy decision that could, you know, set us back even further than we already are. Yeah. I mean, calling 
you know, kind of policy ideas from your health secretary moronic is probably not a kind of good way to enhance your scientific career. But I, but I stand by it. I mean, it is moronic. I think that the UK, and the UK is not perfect, um, but the UK um, recognize, has recognised this as being a problem for some time. Uh, and, and antibiotics are well regulated in the UK, but we could do a lot more. Um, and if you look at the data on places where you do have better regulation and use of antibiotics, particularly in Scandinavian countries, and I say the UK does quite well on this, then there is a, a correlation between resistant infections and access to antimicrobials. And the UK has also been pushing um, research in this area, and it's also then put money into kind of international development by creating international capacity um, through overseas funding to actually raise awareness and develop so for our government to suddenly have this sweeping comment, which goes back on probably 10 years of effort and, and policy that's gone in to try and slow this down, then it is stupid. Um, so I think that we have a lot more to do. And I think having comments like that from senior politicians that clearly don't under understand the problem that we're in and what needs to be done is not very helpful. Um, and I think that we can do a lot more internationally of policy changes about the way we access all of these things. Uh, and something where we could start is by looking at how these policies are structured uh, in many kind of low-income countries, if you like, where there aren't any policies and they become easy to access for healthcare and also for animal husbandry. Um, by having better restrictions on those would slow down the process. It's a process we can't stop, but we can slow it down and buy some time until we come up with, with other alternatives. What would these other alternatives look like? Um, yeah, so we, you know, we as a as a microbiologist um, that's interested in infectious diseases, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can kill microorganisms, um, and there's different things that we can do. So, so if we think about current antibiotics, about how we use them, so just to kind of go back over some of the the issues and how we fix them, we can have better policies about how we access them. We can use them and cycle them better to slow down resistance patterns. We can repurpose existing chemicals that we use for different things into different places to buy us some time. But then ultimately, we need different things. And I think that um, COVID has had, you know, a devastating impact um, globally, financially, and and also kind of, um, you know, emotionally and other things as well. But it's really taught us that we can take on many of these challenges if we're prepared to do so. COVID has really opened our eyes to kind of public health measures that can be brought in very, very quickly. Um, we've had new kind of vaccine platforms that have been introduced. Um, we're now have the acceptance of using therapeutic um, immunotherapy for treating COVID infections. So what I mean by that is then we've got new platforms where we can make vaccines relatively quickly that we don't necessarily do for many bacteria infections at the moment. So, and we know to some extent for some organisms, how we can start thinking about generating a protective immune response against it. So how we can trigger our body to work against it, to fight it without the need for antibiotics. But also then using the same approaches for thinking about how we can provide antibodies. So rather than generating a, a protective immune response by triggering your immune system, we actually put a component of your immune system into people. So that would be antibodies. And then, then they fight against the infection too. So there's kind of two examples of what we could do. In fact, there's a few examples. So different approaches to the way we think about killing bacteria with different chemicals or, or different biological agents. 
uh, antibody uh, responses, but also then thinking about how we come and make kind of new generation vaccines as well. So there's lots we can do, but we're probably not doing enough in that direction at the moment. On that note, um, do geopolitical priorities come into play then? Where money goes into if um, some diseases are considered um, perhaps only prevalent or more prevalent in low-income countries, therefore there's less concern there? Yeah, there there is. Um, And scientific funding is a very, very complicated thing, um, both kind of public scientific funding, but also private scientific funding, about the way it's committed, about the cycles of funding and how long it lasts for, often for short periods. So having a sustainable run at something becomes quite difficult because of the nature of scientific funding. But for the type of work I do, uh, for example, lots of the infections that I work on or I'm interested in are not prevalent in the UK. Uh, They're prevalent in many kind of low-income countries. Um, And that often makes scientific priorities of funding very, very difficult because the stuff we're working on may be a little bit tangential to to where it's required. And then doing a lot of this work overseas becomes problematic because of capacity, laboratory support, sustained funding, you know, all all of the things that make this this an issue. Um, But my preference would be, yeah, to, to... to move the focus of the research efforts for treating the big infectious diseases internationally where AMR is a problem to the places where they come from. And that is not necessarily the UK or the US. But I think it's something we have to think about doing about how we repurpose our priorities and repurpose our funding to do that. And I think you have something to share, right, about how University of Cambridge, for instance, um, with its funding assistance can um, support lower to middle income countries and sort of just help them build their capacity so that the development takes place in the countries. Yeah, yes. Uh, so, as I said, so I spent 12 years living in Southeast Asia, uh, which was a kind of really valuable experience for me. So what can we do, not just from Cambridge, but what can we do from the West or the global North that, that is often referred to for, for these kind of issues? Yeah, so... I mean, it's it's a kind of a, it's a little bit kind of blue sky about the way we think about we change these things. But actually what we're, what we're doing is we're trying to move a lot of our kind of research focus out to places where people need training and scientific support to, to tackle lots of these things. So that doesn't mean me getting on an airplane and going telling people what to do somewhere. That means us having people over from our, from, visiting, collaborating institutes overseas, spending a a protracted period of time with us in our lab to learn our skills, and then us trying to provide some longitudinal support for them to maintain their research in areas they're interested in. Now, that is a a big challenge. First, getting people that want to come and spend a long time here, but then that kind of sustained interaction of providing kind of scientific support and mentorship, additional training when they need it, and also then to push them to apply for their own funding and try and dictate their own research in those places too. So it's early days, but you know we've, we've got some really positive um, collaborations with various organisations in, in Asia and also now emerging in Africa. So yeah, I've got a, a group of three people um, going to India to then run a series of workshops um, in, in different locations in India to try and provide interest and training in the things um, that we're working on. And then some of those people will then come back and spend a period of time working with my group in our laboratory in Cambridge. And and whether it's, you know, across the region or or say Malaysia as an example, what should our research priorities be? I mean, that's not for me to decide 
what Malaysia's research priorities should be. But I think that what I would suggest is that people in Malaysia, if we're talking about microbiology research, should be focusing on the things that have the biggest human uh, or animal impact in the region. So I know that Malaysia is probably not dissimilar to other countries in Southeast Asia that would have the kind of circulation of a number of different bacteria that would cause serious blood infections. And I think focusing efforts on understanding that and how that relates to what's going on in other places too. So these things don't happen in isolation. The situation in Malaysia will be very similar to the situation in other places. There will be slightly different nuances with the way things are, are structured and what's going on in the healthcare system. But there's a lot of lessons that can be learned by plugging in resources from lots of different places to try and tackle the problem. So I think that Malaysia should be working on things that are important to Malaysia. But when you kind of expand the network a bit, you'll probably find that actually they're very similar to the problems in other parts of Southeast Asia as well. Mm. Um, also, coming back to, I suppose, um, where policy decisions can make a difference um, in the clinical setting uh, and in animal husbandry, um, what could change the course in terms of you know, sort of resetting all the wrong practices that have been taking place? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. I, I, I don't think we know. Um, so I think we've gone, we've gone so far now down this line that if we then suddenly withdraw or change policies, therefore we say we don't use antimicrobials in animal feed then we don't we can't reset that situation so the resistant organisms will be maintained at some lower level for a period of time anyway what we don't know is because it's so complicated how and how long that will last for and and it and for some things for certain drugs that i'm interested in probably they won't i think probably they're these changes are hardwired into the genetics of the organism which makes it very difficult for them to then revert back so for some things it's possible, and there have been experiments done again in Scandinavia, looking at animal production and actually not just restricting, but banning antibiotic use in animals and productivity increased, but also resistance dropped to certain classes of antibiotics very, very actually very quickly. The situation in Asia is probably, you know, an order of magnitude worse than it would have been in Europe at the time. So how we then tackle that becomes a problem. But as a kind of blanket policy for understanding how we tackle this, and there will be impacts on food production and productivity potentially for a period. But I think having a blanket ban on the use of antibiotics in food supplements for animals would be a, a place to start. And there's quite a lot of interesting science that can be done on the back of that to understand what the impact of that is and how that works. What about uh, when it comes to clinical decisions, um, doctors prescribing, um, pharmacists dispensing, things like that? Yeah, this always becomes a bone of contention between scientists and clinicians because everybody thinks that we like to blame the clinicians and the, the clinicians like to blame the patients and, yes. and everybody, everybody blames the pharmacists. So I think it's not about blame. So let's get over that. So I want to go on record and say to your listeners, this isn't about blaming anybody, that we're in a situation that we need to think about. So let's not worry about the blame for now. Yeah, so, and it's all of those things combined. But it's a very difficult decision and I understand how this, you know, this works. So often antibiotics are given as an insurance policy. So you have somebody presenting in front of you with a fever that's been unwell for several days. You don't know what's wrong with them. Very few places would perform a test to actually 
work out what is causing that particular infection. Antibiotics are cheap, really cheap. If the if the bacteria, if they have a bacteria and it's susceptible to that 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 uh, antibiotic, that patient will recover very quickly and when they work. So there isn't really a good argument not to give them to people apart from resistance because we think that they don't do any harm. Um, but now we're realizing that they do do harm, not just uh, of generating resistant organisms, but they have other effects on uh, the body potentially too, which means that we probably shouldn't be taking them uh, without some proper thought about who, who we're giving them to, what they're taking and what they're taking them for. So what we need really then is, is all of these things and big challenges in all of these spaces to, to change the way antibiotics are given out, what they're being given for, better diagnostic approaches for understanding uh, what people are infected with, and also perhaps some kind of changes in policy about maybe waiting and seeing for another 24, 48 hours if that patient isn't getting worse, whether they truly need an antibiotic in the first place. Um, now, they are brave things to do because you don't want the death of a patient on your hands that could be avoided by giving someone, you know, a, a, a few a few pills that would cost less than a dollar. Um, but that's a situation we're probably going to have to end up in, that we really need more kind of understanding of what we're doing and the prudent approaches to where we use the drugs. And that is not something that's, that's tackleable overnight, particularly in developing countries where access to doctors or um, access to diagnostic tests is really, really limited and poor. And therefore, you're preventing you know, you're providing an insurance policy to prevent against more severe infection potentially. So I think that's what I was trying to get at with my question earlier about what should our research priorities be? And I'm wondering whether instead of um, investing in development of newer drugs, which come at a higher cost in terms of capacity and expertise and all that, um, would would we benefit from looking at more rapid diagnostic tests, for instance? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not that, uh, it's a complicated area. So each infection works slightly differently. And uh, we were quite lucky with COVID about how we could, you know, identify uh, the target for diagnostic tests quite quickly for other things that are a bit complicated. But if, if there's one thing that we could do now um, that would require some investment that would work relatively quickly compared to developing, yeah, whole new classes of drugs of thinking about the way we kill bacteria uh, would be real you know, development of diagnostic test approaches to really work out what people have. Just, uh, and I know these do exist and probably I'll get critiqued for saying this, but, you know, there are approaches to work out whether someone has a bacterial and viral infection. So for your kind of listeners, so antibiotics that kill bacteria do not work on, vi do not work on viruses. Um, so therefore, if someone comes in and has a, a respiratory tract infection and you can tell whether that person has a virus, um, then they don't need an antibiotic. Thus, therefore, cutting down a, a substantial proportion of the people that would receive an antibiotic be, because they don't, when they don't need one, because they're not infected with the bacteria. So, yeah, that would be a big sea change and something that could happen relatively quickly, given where we are with diagnostics, um, without the need to develop immediately new classes of drugs to kill infectious bacteria. And for each of us, what can we do? What we can do is is be aware of um, aware of the problem, that aware what what antibiotics do and, and what they don't do and what they could be used for. Um, about 
demanding that we see the doctors and they give us the best medicine. I know kind of from, from personal experience that if you see a, a private doctor in in Southeast Asia uh, with, and you have a respiratory tract infection and the doctor says, you're fine, just leave it, you'll be better in three days. And then that doctor is going to go out of business pretty quickly because the patient will demand some treatment. Or, so or go doctor sh- all- yeah, and go doctor shopping to yeah, find okay. somebody who gives them. Exactly, to find someone that's going to give them something. So I think we, we need to be aware of what we're doing and also of what we're putting into our body and, and the long-term impact it's having on us, but also um, on kind of human populations. I think we don't, we shouldn't be demanding antibiotics. I think we should be more um, conservative, if you like, about our, how we access healthcare for relatively minor things. And certainly I would not recommend if you can go to your local pharmacy shop and buy antibiotics that you do so. Uh, without seeking medical attention and getting some confirmation that you have an infection that requires antibiotics. Um, in closing, I, 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 this is going to be a question you'll hit, I'm sure, because um, there's no way of <laughs> seeing down the road, I suppose. But I come back to the point that um, you know health authorities and health experts like yourself have been talking about this for so long. Um, we don't see um, substantive changes, and uh, if we expect, you know, more infectious disease outbreaks, more pandemics, not fewer, um, down the road, you know, what what do you see? Um, what kind of timeline should we be looking at to really change things around, to put into um, practice things? all the kind of stuff that you've been talking about for the past half hour or so? I mean, we should have been doing it. I mean, we should have been doing it 30 years ago. I mean, I, I think that when we realised there was an emerging problem, I mean, we always knew from the onset that, that we were always going to generate resistant organisms. You know, it's a natural evolutionary process. Um, I think it was predictable that we were, you know, I called it the runway, that we've kind of run out of runway. It was predictable that that was going to happen. I guess that perhaps what we didn't realise is how quick that runway was going to be. Um, so we should have been talking about it. And actually, you know, we, as a scientist, we, we have always talked about it. You know, microbiologists have always talked about drug resistance. Um, and it's only become more political more recently because we realised that it is starting to have a, an impact on our healthcare systems. Um, but we also know the way kind of humanity works politically and the way we operate in certain environments. We've just had a pandemic and now we've had a pandemic. If we have another one in 10 years, everyone says, well, we're much better prepared because we've got all these systems in place. But that isn't necessarily true that we have lots of new science in place and we could probably respond better to the next pandemic. But actually, we're not just going to have loads of capacity to do things and manufacture new vaccines that aren't going to be used for the next 10 years until we get a pandemic because it's a waste of money. So I think that probably... Until it's on our doorstep, until it is, you know, the situation that I alluded to, that people are having routine surgery and getting really serious infections that are hard or impossible to treat or, or people, you know, having parts of their body amputated because of infections, I think that probably not a lot will change. Um, until it gets to the point where it becomes a major problem, that's probably when we'll respond and have to do something very quickly. Until then... Uh, we'll carry on trying to push some of these things. We'll be developing new approaches, thinking about how we have the technology to do something when it happens. But I think ultimately, 
probably without some kind of major policy changes in the next few years, I, I can't see a big difference really until something gives. And that will probably be such as a pandemic where we have to respond and do something about it. Wouldn't that be too late then? Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about climate change now, aren't we? Whereas mm. we should have been talking about climate change 50 years ago and that's probably too late as well. Mm. So I think that now we're putting in fixes for things that we should have been dealing with some time ago. Um, and actually, I don't mean to be overly negative. You know, I think I'm a, I think I am optimistic. I think that science finds the way that we can do these things. But there's a lot of smart people. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily include me in this. But there's a lot of smart people out there that understand these things, and we can fix things and change things and move. But it means big sea changes in the way we think about lots of things, and that becomes problematic, but not impossible. So I think that actually I am optimistic that we can do something about it. But yeah, I think that it probably will be too late. But we can we can fix it if there's the right support for smart people to get on and do their thing and work about how we can fix the problem. All right. Um, it's a gloomy outlook, but you're still optimistic. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> because, I think that's a fair summary, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we, we have to hope in science, I think. And um, we have to hope that, um, you know, common sense, really simple common sense for each of us uh, when, we're, when we have a bug, um, just stop and think about um, what kinds of drugs um, you're given or asking for. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Professor Stephen Baker, Director of Research at the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge. This has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.